1: Like, I always joke, right? If um, I'm working with, you know, a man and we put him on videotape and we play back the videotape, what do you think that he says about himself?
0: I did such a great job. Exactly.
1: <laughs> is that
0: true in, oh in my your goodness, experience? yes,
1: without fail. Wow.
0: Chris Yonke is a speech coach based in Washington, D.C. She specializes in women, women running companies, women running nonprofits, and women running for office.
1: You know, if the scenario is with a woman, what does the woman say about herself?
0: just pointing out everything she did wrong?
1: Yep, and the top three are, you know, what's wrong with my hair? Hmm. Number two, I sound and look like my mother. You know, I don't know <laughs> oh if that's my good God. or bad. And then number three, what happened to my neck or my lips?
0: All of Chris's clients have their own strengths and their own foibles when it comes to public speaking. But a lot of the gender-based obstacles they're confronting, the sexist questions they're asked, the way their audiences perceive them... They're the same. Yeah, so women are much more self-critical. The mother thing is really interesting to me because one of the (laughs) responses that I have heard from men, you know, on Twitter or on cable news when women candidates speak is no one wants to hear their nagging mother.
1: Right. Or their wife.
0: Or their wife. Yeah. So do you think women are sort of preempting that kind of response or is it genuinely an ingrained aversion?
1: I think it's, it's a cultural norm that needs to be broken because women's leadership has not been fully defined. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating about the presidential election campaign is that it's not just one exceptional woman on that stage, but now you have six women who are individuals with different backgrounds and their own way of presenting. So I love it because they're expanding the definition of what it means to be a woman leader.
0: If you're somebody who believes in the power of equal representation, who wants to see more women in political office, tracking the way female candidates are demeaned and diminished year by year, it can get frustrating. There's so much that hasn't changed. Today on What Next, Chris Yonke tells us what has. I'm Christina Cotarucci, filling in for Mary Harris. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: How did you end up in this field of work?
1: Well, I tell you, um, the person who really influenced or changed the direction of my career, it honestly was law professor Anita Hill. I started out as a local TV reporter in Minnesota, where I'm from, and then had worked in politics as a press secretary. And in 1991, I guess those were the hearings, right? We all watched what happened in those Senate confirmation hearings. She was so poised in an extremely pressurized situation You know, alone at that table, facing that all-white, all-male panel. I mean, she exceeded expectations, right? You know, that she handled herself with such composure and calm, given the types of questions they were hurtling at her. I really had a lightbulb moment. There was a photograph that appeared on the front page of the New York Times. And it showed um, a few of the women from the House of Representatives walking up the Capitol steps to call on their brethren in the Senate. And when I looked at that photograph, what really struck me is how few women there were. And so I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I want to do media training, but I want to work with women who want to be in leadership.
0: That was also a moment where a lot of women decided to run for office. I think they called that next election cycle after Anita Hill the Year of the Woman. It's almost like you were part of that wave.
1: Well, that's right. Yeah, we had a record number of women who ran and won in 1992. And then to have that almost replicated, right, in 2018. I mean, I feel actually uh, very privileged to have had the opportunity to work with women who ran in 1992, and Women Who Ran Again in 2018.
0: And what does a typical training look like for you?
1: Well, we focus on really three things. Number one, delivery technique, so how to present yourself well in person and on camera. Number two, developing strategic messages, so speech writing, sound bites for media interviews. And then number three, how to project confidence you know being self-assured in all these different speaking environments
0: so what kinds of missteps are you correcting usually
1: posture matters what you do with your hands because we're trying to eliminate things that are distracting so that the audience can focus on the message that's coming across
0: like a bernie sanders like uh there's all those memes of him like pretending to pet an imaginary pony
1: yep exactly (laughs) (laughs) The wagging of the finger. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like
0: with the right attitude, some people can make those things work and some people can't.
1: Yes, that's right. When the audience feels that the speaker is truly speaking with passion about a subject matter, then the delivery technique is less important.
0: Your expertise is particularly gendered, too. You're trying to help women overcome the sexist expectations that voters might be setting for them. Have those expectations shifted at all over the past couple years?
1: What's different post-2016 is, number one, reporters and people in the media like yourself are reporting on this more. You're talking about it. You're covering it. And we know from research that the candidates need to push back very forcefully. In the past, those types of comments, which can be really, you know, take a toll on an individual, you know, personally, to have people say terrible things about you. You know, candidates maybe were instructed to ignore them, but no longer. Like a really good example of this in the last election cycle of Gretchen Whitmer, who ran for governor in Michigan. She produced a video, you can still see it on YouTube, where she reads the mean tweet that men have sent her. This one's from Gary. It's really clever. It says, get back in the kitchen. I hope you didn't spend all night thinking that one up, Gary. So what a great way to push back on all that sexism. And it also shows she has a sense of humor. You Nazi, fascist, communist butthole. I can't. I have not been called a butthole
0: (laughs) since I was in elementary school. (laughs) What changed in the cultural landscape to give these female candidates the permission to be able to push back on this stuff?
1: Well, I think there are two things. Number one, the Women's March and the Me Too movement. And in the wake of those events, I think that more people are willing to listen to women so that's really important, right, that there's been validation of women's stories. It's not absolute. It's not across the board, but more than we've ever had before. And the second thing, particularly to women candidates, and I say this as someone who's been doing this work for 20 years, is we know so much more than we used to. When I first got started, nearly all of the consultants and campaign staff were white men. And so they had a playbook that they used, right? Right. Written by white guys for white guys. That playbook doesn't work anymore. There's so much research that's been done. We've learned a lot from the research and also just practical experiences. One of the most heartbreaking things for me to hear post-November 2016 election was a senior Hillary Clinton advisor saying, oh, I didn't know it would be so hard for a woman to win. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, hello. Yes. You know, we we do know this. There's a lot of research on it. Yeah. So that was, you know. Some of the most
0: prominent research on female political candidates comes from the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. Its research found that voters will gladly support a male candidate they don't particularly like if he's qualified, and they assume he's qualified. For voters to support a female candidate, they need to like her, and she has to prove that she's qualified. Research also shows that voters really want to know about a female candidate's home life, her family.
1: You know, the old saw that no one ever asks the male candidate who's taking care of the kids, right, or who's making dinner tonight. So it's really important for the candidate to decide how she's going to talk about her family and her personal life because voters want to know, right? They're just curious and they, have that, they hold the double standard. Because they're worried that, like, for example, a candidate with children won't have time to focus on their needs. And so the candidate has to talk about it in a way as, yes, I have a family, but I've got it under control. You know, here's my support network. And that's, you know, um, what was so interesting in 2018, so many candidates running as themselves, right? You saw them with their children. They went door knocking with their kids. So all of that is very new. Yeah, I saw that
0: too. There were candidates breastfeeding in their campaign videos or picking up their kids' toys. But do you think the pendulum has swung too far in that direction now where female candidates feel like they have to put their motherhood front and center? And where would that leave candidates without kids?
1: No, I don't think it's gone that far. And, you know, every candidate situation is unique. Generally, I think there's more acceptance of the candidate's whole life. And I guess another way to think about it is, you know, many of the women who ran in 2018 had different backgrounds, right, whether they were bartenders or military veterans. And so I think many of them saw what happened to Hillary when she ran the first time for the presidency. She sort of ignored the fact that she was a woman and then leaned into it a little bit more the second time. So they've sort of watched her jump through all those hoops And have just said, you know, no, I'm just going to be me. How do you
0: prepare these female candidates to deal with the sexist responses their candidacies might provoke?
1: Well, number one is anticipating it, right? Knowing that it's coming and so being ready for it. So, like, one of the things that we know, you know, lesson learned, is that if a man runs for office, voters assume that he's qualified. If a woman runs, she needs to prove that she's qualified so how are you going to do that? Um, and one of the best ways to do that is to be able to talk specifically about accomplishments, because voters nowadays are looking for people can, who can problem solve. So that for women, that means being comfortable about talking about their results and accomplishments, because you know, that's another gender difference, right? Just generally speaking, women are less comfortable tooting their own horn. Men don't hesitate to do that. But
0: isn't that in part because women are more likely to be thought of as, you know, uppity or boastful when they do something like that?
1: Yes. And so how they talk about what they've done matters. So, for example, instead of using the first person I exclusively, huh. yeah. it is a good idea to use a combination of I and we. I was proud to lead the team that accomplished X.
0: According to Chris, it's not always the people you'd think who are stuck in an old-school, sexist mindset about women running for office.
1: What was most disappointing and continues to be most disappointing is the reality that older white women are the most judgmental about women candidates. That is the most, for me personally, because that's me, um, frustrating things about the electric right now. Yeah, that
0: is really interesting and, and certainly tracks with my experience when i talk talked to people about Hillary Clinton, some of the people who hate her the most and, and say the most sexist things about her were older white women. What is going on there?
1: Well, it's interesting because then the initial reaction to this slate of presidential candidates is, and I've heard this from older white women, I can't support another woman because of what happened to Hillary. Cool. Awesome. But that's where I think these debates are really important, because the candidates on stage right now, if they continue to perform as strongly as they are, they're going to change that dialogue. Because I think people are very seriously looking at Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and not questioning their electability.
0: Can you point to any good techniques those women have been using in the
1: recent debates? The first debate, Kamala Harris had the breakout moment with her exchange with former Vice President Joe Biden on race. She had such a command of the stage. Part of it was her physicality, uh, how she was holding herself and her eye contact. you know. And part of it was what she was saying, her message. But what most people overlook then is the voice because the voice is a power tool if you know how to use it. So in that particular exchange, what she was doing is she was speaking with a slower pace. On the issue of race. I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. She was using pauses. It was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations. And her sentences, just like what I'm doing right now, are very short. So she had these short declarative sentences.
0: And there's a sense of drama that that lends it to, where no one wants
1: to interrupt because everyone was sort of like, oh, shit, what is she going to say? And then Amy Klobuchar had a really good moment, too, when uh, Governor Inslee was going on and on and on about his record on women, and she interjected with, hey, wait a minute. I just want to say there's three women up here that have fought pretty hard for a woman's right to choose. I'll start with that. I thought that was actually a really good moment because it was not scripted in advance. You know, Amy Klobuchar was able to uh, be very agile, right, and respond very quickly um, to him thumping his chest.
0: Yeah. And like you said, she kind of made it into a we and instead of just trumpeting her own accomplishments.
1: Right. Which was so generous.
0: What do you like about working with female candidates particularly?
1: From my experience, they're running because they want to get stuff done
0: versus men who
1: they're running for the office. They're running to be something. Women run to do something. Men run to be something. You see that entitlement on the debate stage with the, you know, the many white male candidates who think that by some birthright, they should hold the office.
0: Do you come to your meetings and trainings with examples of, you know, great moments in political communication?
1: Yep. Got all kinds of video clips on file. Stacey Abrams' State of the Union response speech to Trump back in January. Oprah Winfrey's acceptance speech at the Academy Awards.
0: Oh, yeah, that was incredible. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It shows you the power of good speech writing, her talking about her mother coming home bone tired after a day of cleaning other people's homes.
0: And do people come with their own women that
1: they admire, who they want to sound like? They do now. I always, just for my own uh, frustration, I always used to start sessions, if I was doing a group session, um, and ask people who they would m- admire, and no one would ever mention a woman. Wow, really? Never. And if they did, it would be like... Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> How <laughs> oh, scary man. is that? But it's different now. Like, people will say Hillary, they'll say Michelle Obama, they'll say Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> huh. What is the mental block there? They're just not accustomed to seeing women do public speaking. They're just not.
0: Are you aware of any sort of gender-specific trainings or advice for male candidates? Ways that they can appear less angry and shrill? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe that'll be the new cottage industry, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, I just think about especially now that men are more likely than ever to have to interact with women on a on a debate stage or in in live events they can come across extremely aggressive and demeaning. I mean, we've seen that, obviously, with Trump. I don't think he particularly cares whether he comes across that way. I think that's part of his shtick. But for men on the Democratic debate stage, they don't want to be seen as diminishing women, interrupting women, do they?
1: Right. So they don't. They risk being broviators and mansplainers and man interrupters. And I don't think that men will hesitate, you know, to show contrast with the women candidates. But the thing is, they have to be careful because they need to be respectful. Yeah. And that goes, you know, for both sides. Well, stay tuned, right? (laughs) Because you can see some of them are getting really frustrated.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Chris. This was really interesting. Yeah,
1: you're welcome. Take care.
0: That's the show. I'm Christina Cotarucci filling in for Mary Harris. You can find me on Twitter at C underscore Cotarucci. This episode of What Next was produced by Samantha Lee. Danielle Hewitt provided production assistance. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.